As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Danielle Wiley hosts a great podcast called The Art of Sway. Danielle, tell us what you talk about on the show. The Art of Sway brings listeners inside the world of marketing as seen through the lens of influence. So each week I chat with an expert guest for a lively discussion about connecting ideas with audiences in an attempt to uncover all the ways influence impacts how and what we discover, purchase, and recommend to each other. Wow. And where can people subscribe? Go to theartofswaypodcast.com. Find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Art of Sway wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Bridge to You podcast, hosted by yours truly, Monique Russell, where we focus on diversity, inclusion, and understanding for Black cultures through conversations that help us connect to ourselves and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bridge to You podcast. I'm your host, Monique Russell. Today in my guest chair, I have none other than the amazing Reshma Aziz Khan. She is a catalyst for earth-centered practices, which she integrates in her business as a global facilitator and leadership coach for Kenzo Consulting. Let me tell you, y'all, her strategies and techniques, they stem from an amazing lineage growing up in a family that owned, guess what? a safari company. Today, we're going to hear how she integrates what she learned, and we're going to learn a little bit about something she did that is not the norm for many today. Reshma, welcome to the show. Thank you very, very much, Monique. Thank you so much for having me on your show as well. And just following meeting you in person a couple of weeks ago in Nairobi, so I'm very honored. Tell me about it, Reshma. First of all, the place that we met was amazing. The food, the food was to die for. I want to jump right on in. So a lot of times we hear about brain drain, the brain drain in a company, the brain drain in a country, often where people tend to want a better life or a better opportunity. They leave, they find it, but rarely do they return to their country of origin, not you. You lived in the U.S. for a number of years, leading communications in the nonprofit space, and you returned to your home country in Kenya. Tell us a little bit about this journey. Sure. So actually, I lived in Canada, not the U.S. I actually studied in Canada. I did my undergrad in Calgary, which 
If anyone knows Canada, knows Calgary, it's the western part of Canada, often associated with crazy winters. But the one thing that makes it so great is it actually has sunshine even in the winter, which can definitely lift your spirits. So it means when you look out the window, you see amazing sunshine. But then when you actually step out, it's freezing cold. I did my undergraduate degree in Canada. In uh, 2005, I left Kenya. And then in 2008, when I was done, rather than stay there like many of my friends did, I chose to come back to Kenya. And when I came back to Kenya, I got into the nonprofit space Worked with teams in the U.S. for years, so I traveled the world. I used to go to the U.S. I still go to the U.S. for work sometimes for a couple of weeks at a time. But yeah, why I came back? A couple of reasons. So I knew when I was growing up, I wanted to make a difference in the world. Having been from Kenya, having seen what poverty can look like, having seen the potential for individuals and for a country to really step into the space where they can achieve, where abundance is available for all. I wanted to, I knew that my life path was to make a difference in the world. And so I studied political science only because in Calgary, they offered it at that time as a first class honors degree. And um, I knew that I wanted to work in the development space, wherever in the world that looked like. You know, I had a single mom. My dad passed away when I was 13 years old. My mom was on her own, living on her own in Kenya, trying to make ends meet. So my sister and I, who's younger than me, so that we could go to school. And so she was all alone. She was working by herself in Nairobi, which was at that time not the easiest for a single woman trying to make her way in the world. And I felt like I didn't want her to have to do this alone. And so I came back primarily for my mom so that she wouldn't be alone. And also because I felt like I wanted to be in the development space. I wanted to make a difference in the world. And I felt like there wasn't enough opportunity for me in Canada to do the work I wanted to do and that I owed it to my country, to my peoples to come back. So yeah, brain drain is real. And I chose to come back. And for many of my friends choosing to move to other countries in the world, whether that was the UK or Australia or Canada, made sense for me. I am every day grateful that I chose to come back. Wow. Okay. So first of all, kudos to your mom because, you know, raising two girls on her own in Kenya, not an easy feat. Um, And so thank you for sharing the reason why you chose to come back. You said you also felt about the potential for Kenya. So what is that potential that you see and feel? I think we're a vibrant country, like many places in Africa, you know, we're the youngest continent in the world. We have the youngest populations in the world. Um, We have some of the most beautiful natural parks, some of which you visited when you were here in the world, and also some of the most innovative minds. And if you look at Kenya today, we created what is known as M-Pesa, which basically means you can pay your bill not connected to a bank account, not connected to a credit card, simply with your phone. M-Pesa revolutionized the financial inclusion of millions of people in Kenya and for those around the continent who were able to take up the method around the world as well. Uh, And so you can see that potential. You see these creative minds. Today, Kenya is building the uh, Silicon Savannah, you know, sort of like the, the mirror to Silicon Valley, but really there are bright minds, there is energy, there is an energy of space, there is a willingness to really stand up for the world. And Kenya is known even in Africa as a leader in many of these spaces. And so I saw that potential despite the poverty. I think now we're at a space where poverty still exists, 
and you know fellow Kenyans are helping each other out and we're stepping to the space for helping each other out and also we're in this stage at the region where we we're also support systems to many around us so when we talk about Somalia when we talk about South Sudan for example we host some of the world's largest refugee camps that still till today 25 years later host people coming in from conflict in Somalia or from drought or from famine in Somalia or conflict on the South Sudan side so that's where I see the potential and it's moved from latent to to really visible potential that's moving into innovation that's moving into change really interesting radical change and so that's the potential I saw over 15 years ago that made me want to come back and yes I saw that too I was so impressed I was more than impressed um, experiencing the Impesa um, mobile wallet payment system and I was just blown away but by, by how organized and streamlined and how how integrated it is for everyone to use to pay for groceries and gas and attractions and restaurants, whatever it is, you name it. And I think it also addresses a potential to reduce what is known in a lot of countries on the continent, in the Caribbean, around the world, in terms of corruption or bribery, when there were some places that I visited that did not even take cash payments. So without cash payments, you were increasing the transparency, actually, and the tracking mechanisms of payments across transactions. So when you said that you weren't able to find the the opportunity to connect with your, your mission around development work in Canada... Why was that? What did you miss when you were in Canada in terms of being able to connect with your mission and your passion there? So I have to say, I love Canada. I love the peoples of Canada. I got to know people from all over the world who were coming to Canada and particularly also got to learn a lot more about the Indigenous cultures and the history of injustice to Indigenous cultures in Canada that still exists today. And that opened up my eyes because even coming in from Africa, we assume certain stories about certain parts of the world, which many people also assume about Africa, right? Even Kenya. And so that made me become so much more aware of even the privilege I own, of the the world systems, the way the world has not only been shaped, but the stories we have been told about world history. But what I missed, I think that I couldn't get in Canada first and foremost was the sunshine and nature. Canada does have some of the most beautiful, you know, national parks I've seen in the world. But I, I missed, I missed the African savanna. I missed the ability to go hiking one day, to step into the warm Indian Ocean the next day, uh, to really be able to get into the most beautiful natural spaces. I really missed that. I missed the ability to go on a safari. I grew up in a safari family, as you've mentioned. I grew up spending a lot of time in the wilderness and the wilderness meant the elephants and the lions and everything else. And I missed being that close to all of that. And I felt like I was a part of, and I am a part of the African landscape. And that was calling me back. Fabulous. I read um, a post that you had shared about the African dogs. You came across a pack of African dogs. And naturally, when I see that, you know, it's amazing when you talk about the stories that we assume, the histories that we've been fed, or even just 
um, experiences that we're told to fear. So when I naturally saw the picture with the African dogs that you came across, my initial instinct was, oh my God, they're going to ravage you. But the way you communicated your message and you shared that information, it was such a beautiful perspective to see like, wow, okay, you came across these African dogs. It wasn't about fear. It was about really looking at how they were integrating and connecting with each other. And I think that that connects from your experience being into the wilderness. So I want to ask you, now you are doing your business, you're doing a lot of facilitation, you're helping people to find true connection with themselves and others. So how does this integrate? How do you integrate your safari experience into your business practices to help people break through? So first of all, safari is a Swahili word for journey. And a lot of what I do as a coach and a facilitator is also hold space for people to go on their personal journeys, whether that's a personal journey for them as they're looking through what a life shift looks like for them if they're looking for a coach, whether that is a team retreat, whether that is a strategy workshop that's looking towards a vision. The sense of we are going on a journey, we are going on a safari together is what really holds my presence in the space as well and, and makes me very clear in my head that I'm holding this space for you to go on your own safari, so to speak. Um, I've always been connected to nature. So what I'm finding now, even is as a facilitator and as a coach, I find a lot of effective human dialogue and human connection happens in spaces of nature. So sometimes as a facilitator, I'll run workshops where I'll tell people, go into nature and just for 40 minutes, do a walk and talk in nature, be inspired. A couple of weeks ago, I ran a workshop for a global nonprofit outside of Nairobi in an area called Naivasha that's known as the Great Lakes region. It's in the middle of the Rift Valley, and we started the second day of the workshop with a three-hour walk in nature surrounded by giraffes and wildebeest and zebras, and really nudging people to say, while we're in this space with nature, what reflections, what leadership lessons are you starting to have around what we want to discuss in the room together as senior leaders? And then finally, just for me, nature is a space where I want to bring people. It's also a space that inspires as much as possible. With my husband, we try and get out to nature. And so being connected in nature is where I get my biggest inspiration from. I love that. When we were talking previously, uh, you talked about this movie, Ghost in the Darkness, which was <laughs> a movie to help to create some understanding around the history of how Indian families migrated, came into Kenya. Just having that history, having that story I think this connects very well to how we were just previously talking about the fact that we assume certain stories and, you know, maybe we don't have a full context of how things actually occurred. So when you shared this movie with me um, and really about what was happening with the lions, um, can you tell me a little bit about what you know as far as the history for the Indian migration into Kenya? Sure. So first, I want to say uh, The Ghost in the Darkness is an interesting movie. Famous Hollywood actors and famous African actors, actually. Um, not all Kenyan, some South Africa and some from other parts of Africa. It's a more fantastical version of the real story. So there really was a story. Uh, and the, the original book is called The Man-Eaters of Savo. Savo is 
one of the world's largest national parks. It's actually divided into two. It was really a core space for, for what was known as the Lunatic Express, this railway network that was built coming from the, the coastline of Kenya in Mombasa, coming all the way into the interiors, past Nairobi, into Uganda and everywhere else, built by the British when Kenya was under the colonial rule as a way of getting inland, as a way of getting you know into the hinterlands. And so it plays a very, very significant part of Kenya's history, this railway. When Kenya was a British colony, because also India and parts, other parts of South Asia were part of British colonies as well, many indentured laborers were brought from India to build the railway because of the history of building the railway in India. And so when they were brought, the indentured Indian laborers, uh, mostly Muslim, Sikh and Hindu. And you can imagine, considering what's happening in the global context today, everyone actually getting along really well. Hindu, Muslim, Sikh were brought to build a railway alongside native African, native Kenyan tribes. And in the specific area in Savo, there's a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say conspiracies, but a lot of discussion around what was happening. Perhaps the fact that when indentured laborers were getting injured building the railways, there were actually field hospitals with, of course, a lot of blood that started to attract lions. What happened was there was a particular pride of lions that started hunting humans, predominantly the Asians and the Africans, and, and feeding on them. And so they became the man-eaters of Savo. And legend has it that even today, there's a certain pride in Savo that's probably started to die out now that didn't even look like traditional lions would, like the males didn't have manes, so it might have been a specific subspecies. But this particular subspecies, this particular pride really got a taste for human beings. And so this fantastical movie has been made about a ghost in the darkness, and those are two lions. A ghost in darkness are two lions. But in historical fact, it was actually eight lions. And Unfortunately, the taxidermies of the eight lions were given to a museum in the U.S. under colonial rule that Kenya is still trying to fight back to get back to. And unfortunately, it was given under colonial rule. So it's a bit of, a, of an interesting situation. But this is somewhere in the States. You can see the eight lions. Wow. Wow. Talk about history. And that's something that I don't think I would have ever come across had you not brought it up to me. So thank you for educating me and also educating all the listeners and everyone that will be tuning into this show. So as we now begin to move into our final segment, Reshma, I want to really talk about how you see communication across cultures, because you're everywhere. You travel a lot and you've been exposed to and facilitate communication retreats, workshops with many different cultures. And so when I think about across the continent, when I think about communication from the continent to the Western countries and vice versa, what are some lessons or observations that you realize will help make these types of connections more effective? That's such a great question. Um, and the first thing I would say to that is we all need to step into the space of better listening. Not I hear you, but I'm, I'm truly listening. I'm holding space. I'm holding silence to listen to the other. In my experience over the years, even communicating 
across cultures. Many cultures work in many different ways. Many cultures, unfortunately, are stereotyped for working in particular ways where, for example, certain genders can't talk up in rooms, certain ages can't speak up in rooms. But ultimately, it comes down to, are we really listening to the other human in front of us? Every human has a need. So even when we think about resolving conflicts between cultures, uh, and this comes from some of the work of Marshall Rosenberg around nonviolent communication, are we holding space and stepping into the space to listen to what the other needs? Because when we're able to get into that space of truly listening to each other, and one of the things I do as a facilitator now for most of my clients is training on active listening, but listening and suspending judgment. That's the space at which we really get to know the other person. That's where we get to even better understand the other culture. And I want to share a, a specific example of so Simon Sinek, the guy who who's known to, you know, they start with your why. He talked about a very, very interesting woman who's actually Muslim Asian, a little bit like me. She's British. And I I forget her name, but Simon Sinek has posted this on LinkedIn a while before. And she actually wanted to she wanted to understand what drove white supremacists to their actions. And she ended up going to the US and spending a couple of weeks, I think like six weeks or something, with the biggest white supremacist movements near Charlottesville. And she just spent a lot of time listening, not fighting back, not challenging. But then what she said is, I'm listening to you. You should listen to my own story, where I come from. You know, who am I? What are my needs? Ultimately, at the end of the day, what most of the people on the other side of the line from her understood is it doesn't matter whether you're Muslim or brown or whatever, you're human. And so it's a fascinating movie, and I forget the name, but I'll definitely look to share it. Um, at the end of the six weeks, a couple of people from the movement call her and say, we're dropping out from the movement. Because just speaking to you has made us understand that actually you are as human as I am and you are my friend. And so when someone talks about kill the Muslim, kill the non-white person, I can't justify that anymore. What? Sorry, her name. Yeah. And sorry, the name is Dia Khan. Dia mm -hmm. Khan and the documentary. And I'm actually looking it up right now as we speak. Mm -hmm. White right, right as in right or wrong. White Right, Meeting the Enemy. And it's a 2017 documentary series, a film. Wow. Yeah, so I'm definitely going to have to include that in the show notes because, you know, the first thing I think of is like, okay, all of a sudden these white supremacists had a change of heart. Mm, sounds like a fairy tale to me. <laughs> I mean, it's not all of them, of course. Some of them yeah. continue to do their work. And, and it's interesting because they say, well, it's not you, you know, it's, it's the other and it's sort of othering people. But what is interesting is the two or three who completely shift to say, because I have listened to you, because I understand you as another human being now, I've actually realized for myself I can't justify anymore being part of this movement. So let me ask you this for anybody that's listening that doesn't know where to start. Maybe they want to become a better listener, but 
they don't know exactly what to do or how to really suspend that judgment. Because I think sometimes it just automatically pops up. I know for myself, and I've been doing this work for a long time, and just as you, but whenever I feel a bias or a story or an assumption that comes up, sometimes I let it out. And then I'm like, okay, that don't make sense. But for somebody who who doesn't really know where to start or who doesn't even have that awareness that they're not listening effectively or they're not connecting with the human element, what is something that they can do to develop this muscle? So I think the first thing is, and this is the hardest, committing to really being present, providing noticeable respect. For example, Zoom calls have become the one space where all of us are multitasking if our videos are off. And even when our videos are on, pretending to look at the screen, right? Um, But noticeable respect. Now, in most cultures, that might mean I'm giving you full eye contact as I am now. I'm looking into the screen. In some cultures, that's not necessarily respectful. So I also want to be very clear here that being really very keenly aware of the cultural nuances around eye contact, stuff like eye contact, stuff like shaking hands, for example, but really showing the other person I am here to really listen to you. I don't have my phone in my hands. I am really trying to not look at my screen. Just holding space. The other thing is there's a method that I was certified in a few years ago called the time to think amazing, incredible work by this lady called Nancy Klein. And she's got a lot of great examples, a lot of great books, but also holding space saying, I'm listening, not because I want to respond. And even if you want to respond in your head saying, oh my gosh, I don't agree with this. I want to challenge this. Holding your tongue and and suspending your judgment for a moment. And if you're truly giving someone attention, the whole world around you sort of goes into the background and it melts almost, right? And so that's such a good start because even by giving someone full attention like you're giving me right now, it builds trust in me to say this person is holding space for me as another human being. I can start to trust you a little bit more. Even if I don't agree with you, I can start to trust you a little bit more because you're holding this space for me. So really practicing the skill of giving generative attention. If there's one thing you can do differently, it's being so intentional, so deliberate, to say, I'm going to keep all these distractions away. And actually, Nancy Klein, this lady who did all the time to think stuff, she talks about digistractions, digital distractions. That's what our world is full of today. Putting all those aside and being really intentional to be present in this conversation in this moment. So when we were doing the certification training, there's a, they shared a video that actually I have seen over the years. And I can't remember. I think it's actually the International Rescue Committee, a large global uh, nonprofit And this is at a time where in Europe, there was a lot of backlash around refugees from the Middle East, a lot of backlash around, we need to close our borders, we need to not allow them in. And the International Rescue Committee did this fantastic human experiment. They got four pairs of people, one of them who was probably from the Middle East or somewhere else, somewhere from Africa or elsewhere, where they would have escaped to come in as refugees, didn't speak most often a word of the native language of that European country. And the other person was a European native. I think this was actually done in Germany. And what they did, they got each of these pairs of people and they recorded them. They just got them to sit in front of each other and say nothing, but just stare at each other's faces for five minutes. These are people who have had different life experiences. These are people who don't even know how to express themselves verbally to each other. 
But in those five minutes, both sides started crying because they saw beyond all of that, beyond these facades that we create around identity, beyond you're this color and I'm that color. They looked at the human beyond. And that is one of the most important things. And how did they do that? By not having anything else around them except just the two of them in a room holding that space for each other. You can imagine. Generative attention. Absolutely. Generative attention. Generative, respectful attention. Yes, I love that. And I can definitely resonate and align with that because I have had many experiences where I haven't had to use words, you know, 80% of it is nonverbal. And when we are able to do this, we are able to connect on an emotional and on a spiritual and a humanity level. So thank you for sharing that. Before we go, Reshma, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience that we haven't discussed? Well, as things go in flow, I don't think there's anything immediate, but if there's One thing I can say, considering the world we're living in today, is take literally the two minutes, even if it's in your week, to connect with another human you might be working with, you might be living with, just by holding space for them. Because in today's world, we have become so busy, we don't take the time to just hold space for another, to to speak, to think to be seen and to be heard and to be validated. So if there's one thing, it's can we commit to doing that for another human being? If you find you're already doing that, can we commit to doing that for another human being who is probably in a more difficult situation? In the past few days, I'm sure everyone's seen what's going on in Sudan. I have good friends, very good friends who live in Sudan, one of whom I used to work with, and she works with an international INGO, and she was evacuated, but they couldn't evacuate her family from this mm-hmm. conflict that is not stopping, where there are bodies on the road. It, it's horrific. But imagine giving someone like her just two minutes of your week to check in, to say, I'm holding space for you to release. That goes so far in healing humanity and we can all play a part of that we don't have to each be certified as therapists but we can hold space for each other I love that you said that we don't all have to be certified therapists but we can certainly hold the space and that means giving the generative attention and giving noticeable respect and just listening, using the tools of listening. I told you guys she was going to bring the heat, and she did. We have gone through an educative and informative safari with Reshma today. Safari, that word meaning journey, and what a journey it has been. So taking time to go back and make sure that you begin to develop stronger effective, better listening skills. Make sure that you don't assume the stories that you've been given. Maybe go ahead and learn a little bit more. I love the way Reshma is so full with resources and movies and books and stories that we can go and learn a little bit more. If you haven't learned even just what's going on in your backyard, go on ahead and see if you can find any type of book or resource or movie that can get you even more informed and more aware. Suspend your judgment 
try to give generative attention and try to give noticeable respect to those that you work with, to those that you live with, and more importantly, those that you love. I'm Monique Russell, your host of the Bridge to You podcast. Today, we're speaking with Reshma Khan from beautiful, she's sitting in beautiful Nairobi, Kenya. And where can they find you if they want to connect with you, come on a safari with you and really go ahead and break through? So you can find me on LinkedIn at Reshma Aziz Khan. You can find me on Instagram where I post mostly safari travel stories at Reshma Aziz Khan. And uh, you can also find me on my website at www.kenzo, but it's with an S, not a Z, not like the fashion label, K-E-N-S-O dot consulting. So that's www.kenzo.consulting. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you, Monique. Thanks for listening to the Bridge to You podcast. Visit clairecommunicationsolutions.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, Monique Russell, or Instagram at Clear Communication Coach. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Steve Turney hosts a great podcast geared toward mental health marketers called The Boost. Steve, tell listeners what you cover on the show. The Boost is our podcast, and the tagline is conversations with people promoting mental health, and that's what it is. So it's marketers, company executives, therapists, and mental health advocates talking about what they're doing to move this industry and this important thing called mental health forward. Amazing. And where can people subscribe? I'm big on LinkedIn, so you can find us there, just uh, slash Steve Turney, or you can find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Boost wherever you get your podcasts. You heard him. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.